I was sick this last Tuesday for the praise and pie. So I missed my, I, the testimony I was preparing, I missed my opportunity to give public thanks to God. So I do want a chance, this might be my last chance to say something publicly. I do want to say I'm so thankful for our church body and the incredible blessing that our church family has been in our lives for my wife and I, for my entire family. We are so deeply, deeply thankful for God's grace expressed through you to us and you are all precious and dear to us. I did want a chance to say that before we depart towards the end of December. Uh, but enough about that. We need, we need to get around to the message from God's word this morning. Let's take a moment for a brief informal survey. And if you want amnesty, you know, if you want to remain anonymous uh, for protection or reprisal, uh, you don't have to participate. But raise your hand if you've been playing Christmas music since the beginning of November. Any hands? Any hands? Okay, most hands actually, believe it or not. All right. Raise your hand if you already have your Christmas tree up in the living room. All right, several more hands going up. Now raise your hand if you never took down your Christmas tree from last year. <laughs> Any hands? Some may be scandalized by a Christmas message so early in the year. And if that's you, then I am so sorry. My deepest apologies. Um, if it helps, there are plenty of applications that can be made to Thanksgiving as well to rejoice for all that God has given and all that God has done. But I do feel a little compelled to turn our attention to the most wonderful time of the year. We're entering the Christmas season in which Christians commemorate the birth of Christ into the world. It's a season filled with wonder, expectancy, joy, hope, and peace. Celebrating Christmas is nearly a given in our culture, and the observance of Christmas has collected many barnacles throughout the years. And without doubt, each family represented here has its own holiday traditions, routines, and patterns. And we look forward to the holiday season with great anticipation. Have you paused lately to consider the irony of what's celebrated at Christmas? What's all the hustle, bustle, and holiday cheer about? Or put differently, why did the wise men come from afar? And why did the shepherds rush to Bethlehem that starry night? On the face of it, the Christmas event is actually unremarkable and unspectacular. It's rather plain. On the first Christmas, a baby was born into the world. What's so special about that? Thousands of babies are born into the world each and every day. And shockingly, the Christmas child was a common child, not even a child of nobility or means. The heavens over the plains of Bethlehem inflamed for a baby boy born to a peasant girl in a stable in David's city. This is an incredibly ironic scene. It's not at all the kind of thing we would expect. Earthlings didn't consider this child so special why should heaven's opinion be any different? You can recall so many in the birth narratives of Christ, particularly Herod, who wanted all the children in that region slaughtered, trying to stop the birth of this one child, this one baby boy. On that night, that barren yet beautiful night, why were the tectonic plates separating heaven and earth crashing together with violent eruptions of the supernatural. In other words, what happened on the first Christmas? 
course, you, you probably already anticipate an answer. Scripture answers that question from many different angles. But this morning, let's consider Isaiah's perspective and Isaiah's explanation of what makes Christmas so special. In a moment here, we'll turn to the book of Isaiah. But before, let me set the broad context. The passage we will consider this morning is found in the book of the servant, which is generally recognized as Isaiah chapters 40 through 55. In these chapters, Isaiah's oracle takes on a new tone and theme. In the book that comes before Isaiah chapters 1 through 39, Isaiah foretells judgment, doom and gloom against God's people. Uh, God's people had participated, had caved way to the idolatry of the surrounding nations. I, um, God's people in Isaiah's time during his ministry had become as pagan as the surrounding world. And so God foretold through Isaiah that he was going to conclusively judge them. Uh, the Northern Kingdom of Israel, the Northern 10 tribes would be exiled by Assyria in 722. The Southern Kingdom of Judea, Jerusalem and the surrounding kingdoms would likewise be exiled and judged in 586 by the Babylonian empire. So Isaiah foretells uh, judgment and denounces God's people for their paganism, for their idolatry and their wickedness. Uh, he says, sadly, in a sweeping summary statement towards the end of his oracle that God's people had become like a people over whom God had never ruled. That's an, a terribly depressing statement. This was the plight of God's people at the time that Isaiah ministered around 700 AD. Uh, but like I said, Isaiah chapter 40, with the beginning of the book of the servant, turns a significant corner. Here, Isaiah offers to God's people a message of comfort. Um, Isaiah 40 begins with two very iconic words. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Once again, God extends consolation and a work of restoration to his people. No longer will he divorce them. Now, yet again, they're reunited. They are his people and he is their God. And that message of comfort and consolation continues throughout the book and uh, eventually reaches its climax in Isaiah 54 in the restoration of Israel. Israel's tent, so to speak, is going to be so large that they're going to have to pick up stakes and enlarge for more and more habitants, more of the people of God uh, being restored to a covenant relationship with God. And then Isaiah 55 reaches an ultimate climax, not only in the restoration of God's people, but in the restoration of the world as the call to come and thirst for anyone who drinks goes out to the globe, a universal offer of salvation. So as Isaiah develops his message at this pivotal seam in his prophecy, it becomes plain that Israel's restoration and global restoration are only made possible by one, by the work of the servant. And that's why Isaiah 40 through 55 is referred to as the book of the servant. Now, lest we jump to hasty conclusions, let me warn at the outset here that identifying the servant isn't as easy 
as it may appear, although you probably have the right idea. Early on in the, in the book of the servant, Cyrus, the king of Persia, is actually identified as an anointed one of the Lord, called in the Lord's righteousness, who will accomplish God's purposes. And this is one of the details that makes the book of the servant so remarkable. Isaiah prophesies that though Assyria gained conquest over the northern kingdom, and though um, the Babylonians would gain conquest over the southern kingdom, that God would raise up another king, the king of Persia. He's even called by name in Isaiah 45, Cyrus, who would restore God's people to their land. This is a predictive prophecy of the Lord, which was fulfilled in 539 BC. So Cyrus is described in terms of servanthood. He's going to fulfill one of the purposes of Yahweh, Almighty God. Also, the Israel, um, Israel as a nation, Israel herself is described in terms of servanthood. She is one that the Lord called from the times of Abraham and set apart for himself to serve his purposes. The Lord formed Israel for himself and Israel as a nation, as a people, as a kingdom of priests was meant to serve the Lord's purposes, bringing justice to pass in the world and extending the rule and reign of God across the globe as was intended in the dominion mandate. Uh, so it's not as easy as we might think to identify exactly who the servant of the Lord is that Isaiah has in mind, especially as we turn our attention to our passage in Isaiah 42. What we need to understand is that like any good storyteller, Isaiah develops his message with patience and subtlety. He doesn't give us any spoilers. He maintains the tension of the plot, only letting it unravel in the right way at the right time. And so in Isaiah 42, he begins to discuss, he begins to foretell the servant of the Lord. And especially uh, with an eye towards what the servant would do. Now, as we pop into this chapter, here's what we know so far. Here's sort of the story so far, picking it up from earlier on in the book of the servant. We know that Adonai, the true and living God, has subpoenaed idolaters and their idols, calling them to stand trial. That's the setting uh, for this oracle, this exalted poem about the servant, the Lord the world's rightful king, the true and living God has called idols and idolaters to stand trial and to give an answer. If you would glance over at chapter 41, verse one, this sets the courtroom scene. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Then let them speak. Let us draw near for judgment. The Lord has summoned the world to give an answer. Uh, the, Lord, the, the world has concocted its own answers and means, its own philosophy of living. And the world is, and the Lord is calling the coastlands and the distant peoples to stand trial for their vanity and for their worthlessness. And he's going to introduce his solution into the equation. Um, it's important to recognize that in Isaiah's terminology, coastlands and nations speak of the Gentiles. 
the far-flung peoples and places of the world as it relates to Israel, God's people. So here God is addressing the nations for crafting and worshiping vain idols, images that are hollow and lifeless. And he warns that idols are vain and anyone who serves them makes themselves an abomination. Look now at the end of chapter 41, verse 24. The Lord totally indicts idols in this verse. Behold, you are nothing and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. Idols are a vain hope for salvation and deliverance. And this is so tragic because God's people had turned aside in Isaiah's time to idolatry. And they had made alliances with former nations like Egypt who serve false gods, hoping for salvation, hoping for rescue against the world's superpowers. And the Lord says, the one who chooses idols is an abomination, makes himself empty, vain, and worthless. And throughout this section of scripture, Adonai, the living God, is especially rebuking idols for their lifelessness and their inability to predict what will come to pass. Yahweh keeps calling the idols, the false gods, to stand trial and challenging them. Can you tell us about the former things or the things yet to come? No, you cannot. You're utterly vain, lifeless, and worthless. And in contrast, the true and living God can. He determines the future. He foretells what will happen in the future so that his people are prepared and worship him and him alone as almighty God. So he calls idols, false gods to stand trial and to give an account. And in our passage, Isaiah 42, one through nine, we um, read an unexpected twist. The Lord makes a pronouncement of a new and an enduring work. He will offer hope to the nations and restoration through a hand-selected servant. So the nations, the coastlands, the far-flung peoples of the world with respect to Israel, they're not cut off, hopeless, utterly shut out in the dark. There's actually a glimmer of hope, a work of restoration foretold through God's servant. That's the message of Isaiah 42, one through nine. That's where this is going. Uh, one more comment before we dig into the meat of the passage, give of an overview, and then dig into the message of Isaiah here. I want you to look at some structural markers in the text. First of all, glance at 49.1. Notice it begins with the word behold. It's an arresting interjection. It's an exclamation. God's trying to draw our attention to something important. Then glance down at 42.1. The very next verse begins again with the word behold. Then look all the way down at 42.9. Again, it begins with the word, behold. These pronouncements frame our passage. And what Isaiah is doing here is he's setting up a stark contrast. He says, on the one hand, behold, idols are vain, empty, and worthless. The one who chooses them is an abomination. They are a false hope for deliverance. Behold, this is emphatically true. On the other hand, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. 
The vanity of the nations, the false, empty gods, the gods of the pagans are utterly worthless and hopeless, debauched of any value, meaning, or life. But behold, the Lord's servant alone will bring God's purpose to pass. He will prosper the will of the Lord, shockingly, amazingly, bringing global hope and salvation, even for the distant coastlands and the nations. That's Isaiah's message. And then he finishes with one final frame. Behold, the Lord alone accomplishes this work for his glory, and he shares his glory with no other, not with any vain and worthless idol. This exalted poem about the servant essentially establishes two points, and we'll get there in a minute, but I do want to make one more caveat here. It's important to realize that Isaiah is, again, developing his message with patience and skill. He's developing his message like a good storyteller inductively. He's not giving us the identity of the servant outright, but at this part of his oracle of his larger prophecy, he's most interested in telling us what the servant will do. And when we come to a place where we fully appreciate the work of the servant, global salvation, light for the nations, then we realize with dawning comprehension that only one man fits the bill. There's only one man who truly qualifies as servant of the Lord, the one in whom the Lord delights the one who will bring God's purpose to pass. But we're getting ahead of ourselves here. And more importantly, we're getting ahead of Isaiah. So Isaiah in this text focuses on the effective mission of the servant as foretold, as predicted, and guaranteed or affirmed by the Lord. And in a nutshell, or you could say a chestnut if you want something more festive, the message of Isaiah 42 is this, and it seems fitting to put this in terms of a, a Christmas jingle. You know, Isaiah, as you read his prophecy and come to appreciate it more and more, you realize he works best in poetry versus prose. And so let's try our hand at a little bit of Christmas poetry this morning. God will send his servant, the true hope of the nations. He will prosper God's purpose to bring light and salvation. He will not come with fanfare or with self-exaltation. The Lord himself upholds him. He will restore creation. Took a minute to write that, so let's try it again. God will send us his servant, the true hope of the nations. He will prosper God's purpose to bring light and salvation. He will not come with fanfare or with self-exaltation. The Lord himself upholds him he will restore creation. That's the message of Isaiah 42, one through nine, the first servant song in Isaiah's prophecy. And I just say, if you're looking for something devotional that you can do with your family, some rich texts that as a family you can meditate on this Christmas season, uh, preparing to commemorate Christ coming into the world, the servant songs, the four servant songs in Isaiah's book of the servant would make excellent material. The first song is here in Isaiah 42, the second is in Isaiah 49, the third in Isaiah 50, and the fourth in Isaiah 52 through 53. So if you didn't have a chance to write that down, you can ask me afterwards, but the servant songs would make for excellent Christmas devotional material. So there are two points in this text. 
The first is the servant's mission appointed. The servant's mission appointed. The Lord's servant will faithfully establish justice in the earth. That's the message of the first four verses. The Lord's servant will faithfully establish justice in the earth. So please look on with me at verses one through four. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Again, this is the servant's mission appointed and the Lord through the servant will faithfully establish justice in all the earth. Um, this passage makes that point in two ways. First, it describes the commission of the servant and then the character of the servant. Notice the overwhelming emphasis here on um, exclusively uh, exclusive allegiance to the Lord, that it is the Lord's servant who will accomplish God's purposes. The emphasis in these verse sets is on the Lord's commission of the servant. Uh, we see that in the number of first person possessive pronouns that appear, my servant, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. The Lord himself takes a personal and vested interest in the servant. The Lord will delight in the servant and the servant will be imbued with divine power. He enters the scene as the solution to the vanity of idols, the worthlessness paganism of the nations, the solution to the problem of the darkness, the spiritual devastation of the world is exclusively one, the Lord's servant, the one in whom the Lord delights, the one on whom the Lord will place his spirit. There are a few things going on in the background of this text that should be highlighted. And the first is the ineptitude of Israel and every other servant of the Lord that predates this ultimate and supreme servant. Adam, and all in Adam have fallen under the curse of sin. Obviously we were made as people in the image of God to worship and serve the true and living God. We were made for his purposes. We were made to fill the earth with the knowledge of God like the waters cover the sea. But everyone in Adam has fallen and every elected servant of the Lord that predates this ultimate ser servant is and was a sinner. Obviously, Adam fell and disobeyed the word of the Lord. And lest we thought as we follow the Genesis account, perhaps Noah would be the solution to God's problems. Maybe, to, excuse me, Noah would be the solution to the world's problems. Maybe God would remake the world through Noah, so it would seem. Yet likewise, Noah fell into sin. He became a drunk and committed shameful acts with his own daughters-in-law. Um, and every servant thereafter, until God selected for himself 
I mean, I'm just trying to pick some high points to, to evidence the point. Until God hand-selected the people of Israel and he brought them to himself in the Exodus. He adopted them to be his firstborn. He made them, of all the peoples of the earth, a kingdom of priests, people who would serve and be devoted to the true and living God, people who would live for the purposes of God. Obviously, they have sinned and um, fallen from God's grace, so to speak, especially in the time of Isaiah, fallen into idolatry like the surrounding nations, um, practicing paganism and idol worship. Every other servant has failed except for one servant, the servant in whom the Lord fully delights, the servant that the Lord has chosen. He's the one man that the world is waiting for. Uh, there's another detail that needs to be brought to the fore as we consider this passage. It's noteworthy that the servant will be filled with the spirit of the Lord. This endowment will mark him out as God's chosen vessel. I think within the canonical context, this refers to the spirit of God that hovers over the face of the deep in Genesis chapter one, verse two. It is the abiding and empowering presence of God. Uh, the one who energizes the word of God, the one poised ready to give life to creation as the words of God are spoken in the creation account. I believe this is the spirit of the Lord that empowered servants of the Lord in ages past. You can think of examples perhaps like Ohaliab and Bezalel who are empowered by the spirit uh, to craft the furnishings for the tabernacle. Or you could think of servants of the Lord like King David and others. The spirit rushed on them when they were anointed as God's chosen servant and enabled them to serve according to God's design. Well, this servant will be filled with the spirit of the Lord in an unparalleled way in order to prosper God's purposes. And there's an important wordplay, um, an ironic wordplay going on here. In the last verse of the previous chapter, when the Lord renounces idols as merely a breath, that's the same word for spirit, ruach. Um, the word for spirit has a semantic range that includes, includes breath or wind or spirit with a lowercase s, or it's used to describe spirit with an uppercase s, the third person of the triune God, which is, I believe, how it's used in our verse here. Uh, so the idols are vain and worthless. They're like a puff of air, a mere breath. They are fleeting. They're empty. But the servant of the Lord will be endowed with the divine spirit. He'll be backed by the power of Almighty God, the unstoppable creative force of the living God. The Lord will place his spirit on his chosen vessel. And again, as I said before, the emphasis in these verses is on the task of the servant, not necessarily his specific identity yet, that comes later in the book of the servant, but his task, what is he going to do? And the overwhelming answer in verses one through four is he's going to bring justice to the nations. That is his vocation. That is the expression of his servanthood. That's his mission from the Lord. There are three strong statements expressing his purpose. Look at 42 verse one. He will bring forth justice for the nations. 42 verse three. 
In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. 42 verse four, until he establishes justice in the earth. This is obviously something emphatic and something important. This is what the servant's going to do. Uh, We need to understand or have a little bit of insight into the term justice, what it means and how Isaiah uses it. Throughout his prophecy and the way he develops his message, Isaiah uses this term to describe the rule and reign of God or the appropriation of God's righteousness, ordering society, ordering community, the way God intended things to be according to God's righteous standards. So enforcing or the determination of God's administration for the world. That's what the servant is going to do. He's going to bring God's justice for the world. So the world that we read about in Genesis 1 and 2, the very good world, God saw what he had made and it was good. God saw what he had made and it was good. And God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Life and the cosmos was ordered according to God's design. It was a globe filled with justice. This is what the servant is going to do. He's going to bring justice, not just for Israel, which is what Israel was meant to be. They they were called out of the world, set apart to be the people of God, the people among whom God ruled and reigned in righteousness through his very good word. This is what they were called to be. They were supposed to showcase God's rule and reign in their midst. And they utterly failed. Well, the servant won't only restore justice in Israel, a subset of God's people, the subset of creation, God's people. He's gonna restore justice for the the nations, uh, for the coastlands. He's gonna do it for all the world. He's gonna be the one who's gonna put the world to right, who's gonna fix God's bent and broken creation. And climactically, amazingly, look at the expression in verse four. Till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law or his Torah. The word for law there is the term that labels the first five books of the canon, the Torah, um, the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We call those books the law of Moses, revelation that God entrusted to Moses He ruled and reigned over his people through his word and covenant when he delivered that on Mount Sinai. Well, this passage tells us that the coastlands, remember the far-flung places and peoples of the world are waiting for the Torah of the servant, that the servant is going to come and he's going to bring his law. And by it, he's going to establish worldwide justice. Justice, God's rule and reign to the far peoples and places of the earth. This is what the servant will accomplish in his mission. And the passage says that the coastlands wait, some translations say expectantly, or they wait in hope. It's as if all the world and all the people in the world are with anticipation, with bated breath, awaiting the arrival of one, the servant of the Lord. That's his commission. And the passage also emphasizes his character. This provokes the question, well, how is he going to establish justice in all the earth? Is he going to be a man like every other 
um, conqueror, someone who is won conquest by raw power or their own means. You know, someone like Cyrus, someone who will come and crush and destroy, uh, someone who will come and bend other things and other people to his will. How will he establish justice in all the earth? And the passage answers that question as well. With rhetorical and literary skill, Isaiah conveys the character of the servant. In this part of the text, he uses a literary device called a litotes, a device in which an understatement or a negative expression highlights the opposite or highlights the, the positive. So for example, we often say things like, well, this isn't my first rodeo. And that actually means that I've got a lot of experience in what I'm talking about here. Or we say things like, you won't be sorry, which actually means you'll be pleased. It means the opposite in a positive way. And we say it that way for effect. Isaiah makes seven pronouncements about the servant in the same way. He will not do this. He will not do this. This will not be done to him. And by that number seven, he is conveying to us uh, the number of the covenant-keeping God. It is a very significant number in the scope of biblical history. God made the world in six days and he rested on the seventh. And his people were meant to uh, keep his covenant by resting on the Sabbath as he rested. So it's the number of fulfillment or completion. And this is the servant's character. This is how he will act. So 42 uh, verse two says this, he will not shout. And if we could draw shades of difference between some of these verbs, we are working in poetry here. So hopefully this isn't reading more into it than Isaiah intended. But if we could draw a shade of difference in some of these verbs, the passage says about the servant, he will not shout, perhaps meaning crying out for the purpose of disruption. He will not shout. The second part of verse two, he will not lift up his voice, perhaps meaning he won't shout down his opponents in conflict as an attempt to dominate. Verse number three, his voice will not, or excuse me, yeah, verse number three, his voice will not be heard in the streets, meaning he will not self-promote or self-exalt. The servant won't whip himself up a following to stroke his own ego. Verse number three, excuse me, the previous statement was in verse two. I had that wrong in my notes. Now we're in verse number three. A bruised reed he will not break, meaning the floundering, uh, excuse me, meaning what other people find useless, he will not discard. So a bruised reed that's worthless as a support, something to lean on, what other people find useless, worthy to be cast out, he will not discard, rather he will restore. Uh, again, in verse number three, a smoldering wick he will not snuff, meaning the floundering and the faltering he will not extinguish. Those who have burned down to embers, he will not smother, rather he'll stoke it into flame with life and vigor. And then finally, in verse four, he will not be bruised and he himself will not be snuffed out the exact same verbs that are used to discuss um, what, you know, a bruised reed, he will not break. He himself will not be broken, meaning he himself is going to show 
overwhelming resistance and tenacity. Though he is meek and mild, he's also unstoppable. The Lord's servant is going to bring the Lord's purpose to pass, no matter what resistance he encounters in the process, and he will not be snuffed out in defeat. Instead, he conclusively will win victory. This is the character of the servant of the Lord, surprising meekness combined with might. All right, so that's the Lord's servant and his mission appointed. That's what verses one through four cover. And then in the next five verses, Isaiah moves to confirm the commission of the Lord's servant. He receives very emphatic, very strong confirmation from the Lord, the servant's mission affirmed. Uh, so the first part of the passage, the servant's mission appointed. The second part, the servant's mission affirmed. And here's how this goes. The Lord himself guarantees the success of the servant's mission. Um, his mission will be completely efficacious, certified and guaranteed by the Lord Almighty and the Lord himself. So let's look on at verses five through nine. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So the first surety that we receive that the servant will be totally effective in his mission is that the Lord, the creator, empowers him. He doesn't move and work on his own steam. Rather, the Lord stands behind him, undergirds him, and upholds him. Uh, verse five is remarkable because it recapitulates formulaic creation language. Adonai, the true and living God, maker of heaven and earth, guarantees the success of his servant. Like Genesis 1 tells us, the Lord alone stretched out the heavens. This is language borrowed from the creation week. The Lord alone founded the earth, established it. The Lord alone gives breath and spirit to the earth's inhabitants. Though the servant will exercise complete humility and self-effacing meekness, the Lord will grasp him by the hand, making his mission efficacious. Uh, so this verse, verse five, functions as a polemic against all idolatry, all idolaters and vain, worthless idols. Idols are empty and vain. They're a false hope for salvation. Salvation belongs to one, the Lord, through the servant. And the Lord will bring the servant's mission to pass conclusively. The Lord swears by it uh, based upon his work of creation, that he alone stretched out the heavens and he alone will effect 
global salvation through the servant. So the Lord empowers him. And then in the following verses, um, in verses seven and uh, end of verse six and verse seven, especially, Isaiah retells and expands the mission of the servant. What will the servant do? He'll bring justice to the nations, but that's further unpacked. It's unpacked in greater detail in these verses. The servant will bring light and liberation to all peoples. Look there in verse six. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. It's disputed what exactly uh, this terse brief statement means that the servant will be given as a covenant for all people. But I think this is what he is indicating. Uh, the servant will be the covenant head, making it possible for the nations, for all peoples of the earth, not just Jews, not just Israel, the Old Testament people of God, but making it possible for all the people in all the world to be welcomed into covenant relationship with the living God. We find out later in the book of the servant that it's the servant's blood that will sprinkle many nations, Isaiah 53, that his own blood is the covenant ratified for the people. So people can enter into right relationship with God. We find out that by the servant's righteousness, many will be accounted righteous. That because of his life and his merit, he will make it possible for others to be justified before the true and living God, to be upheld as in the right. We find out later that his soul will make a guilt offering, that the servant in his suffering will actually become the offering offered up on an altar of wood, that it will be by his stripes that others are healed, that the chastisement that would bring worldwide peace for those who would trust in him and come his way, that chastisement would be put on him. That is his vocation. That's his calling from the Lord. He's going to be given as a covenant for the people and light for the nations. Um, Isaiah 49 uh, gives us a beautiful verse in which this theme of light and restoration for all peoples reaches a shocking climax. Uh, look at Isaiah chapter 49 and verse six. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Uh, this is unpacked a little bit more in verse seven, what it means for the servant to bring light to the nations. Look at verse seven in our text, Isaiah 42. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from dungeons, from the prisons, those who sit in darkness. Isaiah uses this language to talk about the idolatry of the world. And this is picked up and expanded in the New Testament, especially in Romans 1 and in other things that Paul says. When we as humanity 
worship and serve created things rather than the creator. When we choose an abomination and we ascribe the glory that the creator God solely deserves, we ascribe that glory to other things and we worship and serve them. We enslave ourselves in darkness. We make ourselves prisoners of our own designs. Uh, we blind ourselves to the truth. And this was the state of God's people at the time of Isaiah's ministry. At the time Isaiah delivered this prophecy, they were blind. They didn't have eyes to see and they didn't have ears to hear because they succumbed to the paganism of the nations, the worship of false gods. They were trapped in darkness under the shadow of death. And that's essentially what we've all done. That's what all of humanity has done in our false and vain worship. Worshiping ourselves, essentially. Serving created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. So this is the prison and the darkness that Isaiah is discussing here. Those who are captives of darkness, those inhabitants, the servant is going to bring light. He's going to bring truth that leads to salvation, a worldwide global proclamation of salvation. The servant will bring light and life to the nations. And then the song ends with a magnification of God's glory in verses eight and nine. Salvation belongs to the Lord and to the Lord exclusively. No idol or individual can take credit for what God alone has done. The last two verses magnify God's glory. Uh, throughout this court scene, reaching back into chapter 41, the Lord challenged idols to predict what would come to pass. This is a continual refrain from the Lord. Idols are vain and worthless. They're lifeless. They can do nothing. There's no salvation or deliverance in, in uh, the vanity of the nations. Whereas the true and living God, he determines what will come to pass and he tells us what will come to pass so that he will be trusted by all people so that we will magnify his name and his glory as he alone deserves. Uh, so this passage says, behold, the former things have come to pass. And perhaps that's referring to Cyrus and some of the predictions in these passages about Cyrus, how he will rescue God's people and restore them to the land seems to be a way he uses that description, that description, the former things, um, this passage or the book of the servant is replete with that designation, the former things. And I think that's how he uses it. Uh, the former things that the Lord foretold about Cyrus and how he would deliver God's people, those things will come to pass, things in the near future from Isaiah's time frame, And then the next Part of verse nine says, and the new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. The new things are the pronouncement of what he begins to let us in on, what he begins to tell us about the servant, the servant of the Lord and what he will accomplish, bringing global justice and salvation. These new things from Isaiah's time frame, the things in the distant future, the Lord foretells them and they will come to pass. And this testifies that there is only one God, one maker of heaven and earth. He is the Lord and the Lord alone. And he's the only one who can bring salvation to pass. He's the only one who deserves unparalleled allegiance and trust. 
So since you really want to do this, let's fast forward 700 years. Roughly 700 years after Isaiah's ministry, a Nazarene stepped onto the banks of the river Jordan. He was baptized by John and coming up out of the water, a voice from heaven announced, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is undoubtedly a conflation of Psalm 2, the son of God and Isaiah 42, the beloved servant, the only one, the one man with whom the Lord is well pleased. After this event, following the pronouncement, the spirit of God alighted on Jesus in visible form, anointing him as the Christ. Jesus of Nazareth was marked out as the servant of the Lord, the delight of the father. We hear the same heavenly endorsement on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Only he is the delight of the father, the one man who fits the bill. Early in Jesus's ministry, as recorded by Luke, Jesus entered the synagogue of Nazareth on the Sabbath and taking the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, he read out from Isaiah 61. Uh, with themes uh, that uh, directly relate and correlate with our passage. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In unmistakable terms, Jesus identified himself and the Lord God the father identified him as the servant of the Lord, the one who would bring worldwide justice and salvation. And shockingly, he didn't come as you might expect a conquering king with pomp and circumstance, uh, with vain glory, self-exaltation. But throughout his ministry, Jesus embodied meekness, servitude, and humility. He himself was the essence of servanthood, the one true servant of the Lord. He didn't self-promote or self-exalt. He came not to be served, but to serve. He graciously ministered to the outcast and the marginalized. We can think of countless instances, the woman at the well, lepers, tax collectors, and sinners. The broken he did not discard and the downtrodden he did not put out. He was a man completely unlike any other. So this is why we stare in wonder at the nativity. This is why the manger in the cave of Bethlehem possessed more honor than any golden vessel in any king's court. This is why the angels sang glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. On Christmas, we celebrate the arrival of the servant of the Lord and especially what he came to do, bringing light and life. Now, lest we are just filled with warmth and cheer and Christmas chills, don't forget that when Jesus took the scroll of Isaiah in Nazareth in the synagogue and read out the words that he himself, that today that scripture reading was fulfilled in their hearing, he himself was the one marked out by the servant of the Lord to bring deliverance. Remember the response. 
When he was finished, they tried to throw him off the cliff. They had no place for him. Their hearts made no room for him. So the challenge today is for you and for me. Will our hearts prepare him room? Will we receive the servant of the Lord come from God to bring life and light, to bring global salvation? Uh, will we submit to him? Will we worship him as the newborn king? Um, as First Peter talks about, will we honor Christ in our hearts as holy? Let's ensure that we do, especially as we prepare our hearts uh, to commemorate the coming of Christ at Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we are astounded that you gave the world such an incredible gift, such a precious and priceless gift the life of your own son. Father, we rejoice that you have sent us your servant. We acknowledge that we are so undeserving. We are wicked pagans. We are so debauched and worthless in our sin and our vanity and our self-worship. We acknowledge that Christ alone is worthy. Christ alone is worthy. That he is the true servant of the Lord. Father, we rejoice in what he came to do, what he still will do, that he came to bring justice to the world, to order society the way it was meant to be under your rule and reign, and his purpose will prosper. We rejoice that he was not snuffed out, not in ultimate terms, that he rose on Sunday and the power of life and light came out from the grave with him. Father, we confess him today as Lord and Savior. Please help us to celebrate what you have done. Help us to worship him with all of our hearts. Help us as we come into a time of year that's usually characterized by self-centeredness and consumerism. Please uh, help us to praise, to thank, and to tell others what you've done. And it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.